0: Let's read together in God's word, the gospel according to John, turning to John chapter 10 from the first verse. I tell you the truth, the man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate, whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. A counterfeit can look very like the real thing. The whole aim of a counterfeiter, of course, is to produce something that bears as close a resemblance to the genuine article that nobody will be able to spot the difference and everybody will be deceived. There was the proverbial Irish counterfeiter who counterfeited six-pound notes, unlikely to fool many. They want to be as like the real thing as possible. And often uh, there will be a flaw in a counterfeit that will give it away, but if the counterfeiter is good enough, if he's skilled enough, uh, even experts can be fooled. And of course, it's not only uh, banknotes, money that will be counterfeited, paintings, all kinds of things. Uh, anything of value is liable to be counterfeited. And it may only be when the item is tested in some way that its true nature is revealed. Until the appropriate tests are carried out, then maybe everybody is fooled. If it's a painting, for example, maybe you find it in your attic and you think it might be a Leonardo. And if it's tested, perhaps it'll become apparent that the, paint, the pigments that were used didn't exist in Leonardo's day. So it's not a genuine da Vinci you found it's something somebody knocked up in their shed a few years ago, but it had to be tested for the truth to become apparent. Perhaps uh, if it is coins again until the metal is tested, it isn't apparent whether this is really gold or whether it's some base metal just masquerading as the real thing. A test, appropriate test, often will show whether something is genuine or false. Of course, that's true not only with banknotes and money and paintings and so forth. It's true of people as well. When they're tested, that may be the time when we see whether they're genuine or not, as far as their profession of faith is concerned. When the test is applied, is this person the real thing? I want to turn today to John 10 and verses 11 to 15. Shepherds, true and false. Shepherds, true and false. Because that's what this section uh, of John 10 is dealing with. I thought a little about Jesus as the door admitting to the sheepfold. But then he goes on to talk about how sheep are cared for. And there are different kinds of shepherds. And there are shepherds, true and false. We'll take them in the reverse order. Let's think first of all of the false shepherds, the false shepherds. The language that Jesus is using here in John 10 would have been very familiar to his listeners. It's not just that, as we've said before, it was an agricultural society and many people were accustomed to working with with sheep, but the language that the Savior uses here uh, is deeply rooted in the Old Testament Scriptures, in the Bible that Jesus' listeners would have been brought up on. This kind of imagery of the shepherd is something that they would know a good deal about. There are many Old Testament references to the rulers of God's people as shepherds. That applied to the kings. Unlike the rulers of other societies, the kings of Israel were to be shepherds to God's people. It's true also of the religious leaders of the people. The the, the ruler, the the king, was to be a a royal caretaker of the flock of the nation. Uh, And you see that cropping up in the Psalms, just as we sang one a moment ago. And that was the role that was given to uh, the rulers. And that's derived from the fact that God himself is the great shepherd of his people. And so, for example, Psalm 80 And verse 1, he's called, O Shepherd of Israel. The Lord shepherds his people. And so the kings and others were under-shepherds. We sometimes use that expression. But the supreme shepherd is God himself, caring for his people. And that could be a very personal picture as well. We're familiar, of course, more than perhaps any uh, verse in the psalm. Psalm 23 in verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd. So that's the, the kind of background to John 10. God is the shepherd of his people. And the leaders and the rulers of his people were in turn to be shepherds like God himself. And the Lord gave tremendous responsibility to the leaders of his people, Israel. As shepherds, they were to care for the people. They were to nurture them. Uh, they were to protect them as God's representatives. They weren't ultimately there in their own authority. They were there with God's commission. And yet we know, uh, if we're familiar with the Old Testament at all, again and again, the rulers, the kings failed To fulfill the responsibilities. Oh, there were good kings. But it seems in many ways they were exceptional. And so increasingly in the later prophets. God tells the nation and he tells the rulers. That they will be swept aside. And he will provide a shepherd for his people. Who will really do the job. Ezekiel 34, for example, a very powerful chapter condemning shepherds who'd failed to do their work. Verse 10, God says, I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. And language like that would be familiar to those who heard Jesus speaking about the false shepherds. The record we have here in John 10 the hired hands uh, of verse 12. Jesus uh, has in view those who had responsibility for the welfare of God's people, their spiritual welfare, primarily the leaders of Israel. Now, there were no kings in Jesus' day. The, The Romans, of course, ruled. But the spiritual leaders, the religious leaders, were to be shepherds. And yet... By and large, Jesus is saying, they were hired hands. Of course, this isn't just a lesson in ancient history. What the Lord says about the false shepherds of his own day needs to be extended to include those who are charged with the care of the Lord's people in every age. Those who are charged with the care of his people in the church. Pastors and teachers, elders of the church, they're included in what the Lord is saying in John 10, and we need to take the lessons to heart. Look at the characteristics of the false shepherds that Jesus spells out here. First and foremost, they're working for hire. The the old word, of course, the hireling. The hired man uh, in modern translations. They're working for hire. In other words, the goal of their pastoral care, such as it is, is self-centered. It's not the flock that matters. It's themselves. Uh, They're aiming at their own profit and their own comfort in the work they are doing for the Lord's people. Now, we need to bear in mind, of course, the principle that Paul sets out in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 14. He says, those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. And the New Testament does give us uh, good grounds for saying that those who preach the gospel should be supported by the Lord's people. There's nothing unbiblical in that. Nevertheless, that Payment, that reward, that salary, if you like, is not to be the prime motivation for doing the work of caring for the Lord's people. They're not to be doing it for hire. But we need to stop for a moment and remember that the hire that the carers for God's people receive isn't only or isn't even necessarily money. Those called to be the elders of God's people may not be paid. And yet they can do the work for hire. Hire that might come in terms of the esteem in which they are held. That there are men who like to be looked up to. He's an elder. He must be a a good man. He must be a holy man, an elder. Wow. And men can do the work because they want to be looked up to. They want to be highly regarded. They want people to notice. I'm an elder. Of course, they may speak much about how humble they are in doing the work. How unworthy they feel. But they make sure you know how humble they feel. Hire doesn't only come in a check. There are those who get a stimulus out of being able to tell others what to do. There are personalities like that. There are men who enjoy positions of authority because they can get people to do what they want. That's a kind of hire. And so we can receive higher in all kinds of ways and that can become our motivation we can be doing the work of caring for the flock because of what it gives us that's always a danger in caring professions the work can be done because of the kick it gives the care and the work of caring for the Lord's people can be done because it gives us a buzz it does something for us Never mind what it does for the flock. He's working for hire. That's the fundamental flaw with regard to the false shepherd. We need to ask, why do I do this work? Is it for me? Is it hire in some indirect, subtle form? Or is it for the Lord? he's working for hire. Among his characteristics as well, as Jesus sets them out, he says the sheep don't belong to him. And again, that's the root of much of his failure. The sheep don't belong to him. There's not a close bond between the shepherd and the sheep that there should be. What a contrast uh, we find in Paul's words. Philippians 4.1, he's writing to the Philippians, and he refers to them as you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. Paul could say, they're my people. Yes, they're the Lord's people, of course, but they're my people. That sense of belonging. And pastoral care can be given in a purely professional manner. Now, there's a proper professionalism that the work is done as well as it can be done. But there can be an attitude of professionalism. One book uh, that in our presbytery fraternalist ministers we studied some of it a while ago by John Piper. The title of the book is Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. And there's a sense in which that must be the case. There can be a professionalism in how pastoral care is given. That is not biblical. Because there isn't that sense of the people belonging to us, that they're ours. It's doing a job, it's fulfilling obligations, but that's it. do we think of the Lord's flock as our people? He doesn't, the sheep don't belong to him. And flowing from that, inevitably, the third characteristic Jesus gives, he cares nothing for the sheep, verse 13. There isn't a real loving heart concern for their welfare. He doesn't love them, he doesn't pray for them. He doesn't get to know them as he should and yeah, listen to Paul, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty 29. Who is weak, and I do not feel weak. It's not just sympathizing, but there's a taking to heart, a loving taking to heart of all the burdens and concerns of the flock. Complete contrast to the, the hired man. He doesn't really care for the health of the sheep. For he cares for some, the easy ones, maybe the more difficult ones. The care isn't necessarily there. And We need always to be on our guard that our pastoral care isn't light on care. The hireling, the hired man doesn't care for the sheep. That is the fourth characteristic, and that brings us back to where we started, the idea of the testing. He runs from difficulties. That's the fourth thing Jesus mentioned. When he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. In whatever way the wolf comes, it might be doctrinal error. It might be moral failure. It might be division. It could be All kinds of ways in which the wolf comes and threatens the flock. The hired hand is not prepared for the hard, costly work of caring for the flock in danger. And when he's tested, he runs away. He gets out of the situation by whatever means possible. He might get offside and physically leave or he might stay and disengage he did either way different ways of running away but the hired hand runs and the sheep are left to fend for themselves the false shepherd and jesus spells it out that clearly he reminds us of the feelings The sheep don't belong to him. He doesn't uh, care for them. Uh, He runs away uh, in the time of testing. He's shown to be a counterfeit. Uh, And fundamentally his motivation is basically wrong. He's doing it for hire of some kind. And he isn't willing then for the cost. The false shepherd. But of course Jesus doesn't leave it there. He speaks of the true shepherd, the true shepherd. And the contrast, of course, in John 10 is primarily the hired hand and Jesus himself. He is the true shepherd. It's about Jesus first and foremost. He's the good shepherd of verse 14. And there are basic aspects of Jesus shepherding Uh, That no human being can copy. No human being is to copy. The uniqueness of Jesus' ministry, his life, death and resurrection. Nobody in any sense supplies uh, those for this flock. And yet there is much about Jesus shepherding. Jesus' care for his people that can be applied to other shepherds. And you may say, well, I'm not a shepherd. I'm not called to do this work. But you should be praying for the shepherds you've got and for other shepherds. And this is the sort of matter you should be praying for. Pray that your elders and pastor are men like this. Pray that other pastors and elders are men like this. Because this is what the Lord sets out for us. And he gives us here three marks of the true shepherd. Three marks. Of course, we've said primarily it's the Savior himself. This is Jesus. At best, other shepherds reflect these characteristics, sometimes well, sometimes very poorly. But we're to reflect them. And the first characteristic, of the good shepherd, the saviour himself, he gives his life for the sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep, verse 50. Instead of running like the hired hand, Jesus lays down his life for the sheep. And it is a very deliberate act on his part. The death of the Lord Jesus isn't some tragic accident, something that uh, if only it could have been avoided. No, That's why he came. His laying down his life for the sheep was not some last despairing action. It would be for a human shepherd. The shepherd died for the flocks. the last thing he could do for them. All else would have failed. And he more than likely wouldn't have planned to do it. But Jesus came in order to die for the flock, to purchase them. 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And the only possible means of salvation for sinners like you and me was the death of the shepherd. The death of the shepherd as a substitute for the sheep. Of course, this is where uh, the language and the pictures in a sense, reach their their limit because Jesus is both the shepherd and he's also the sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is both. He's the shepherd. He is also the sacrifice. And he takes the place of sheep who deserve to die, taking our sin and our guilt and all the consequences, the wrath and the judgment of God are laid on Christ. The good shepherd takes it all in our place. He's both the good shepherd. And in the language of Revelation 5 and verse 6, he is a lamb looking as if it had been slain. is remarkable? In heaven now, The Lord Jesus in his resurrection body still bears the mark of what he suffered for us. That's what John in his vision in Revelation saw. The glorified Christ has the marks of his suffering. And surely that means that throughout eternity, when we look at Christ, what will we see? We'll see the reason why we're saved. The marks in his hands. The wound on his side. That's why we're saved. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. He has purchased the flock at the highest possible price. How different from the false shepherd. The sheep don't belong to the false shepherd. He's paid nothing for them and he doesn't want to pay anything for them. The true shepherd, the Lord Jesus, has paid an infinite price to purchase us so that we belong to him. Other faithful shepherds, given the pastor oversight of God's people, don't purchase them with their blood. Of course we can't, we don't need to. And yet surely there is a sense in which we give ourselves for the flock. Sacrificial caring for the welfare of the flock. That's the goal we have. The welfare of God's people. And we give ourselves to that. The false shepherd thinks of what do I get from this? The true shepherd thinks, what do I give to the care of God's people? it's costly, that's a cost he'll pay. We'll not be called, I'm sure, any of us to die for the church. There are brothers in other parts of the world who do. Who do literally lay down their lives for God's people. Because when persecution comes... The first targets are the pastors and the elders. If it should ever come here, brothers, we'll be first. Make no mistake, they'll come for us. Are you ready for that? Is that how you view your calling and the flock of God? He gives his life for the sheep. Secondly, we're told he knows his sheep. What a wonderful statement of the Savior, I know my sheep. And knowing in the Bible, particularly when it refers to God, is the language of relationship. When Jesus says, I know my sheep, it is not simply that he is a stock of information about them that he knows their birthdays, he knows what grass they prefer, and so forth. It is relationship language. It's the language of love and of grace that Christ shows to his people. The love and the grace that brings the flock into a covenant relationship with himself. He's purchased these, these sheep. He's paid his blood For them. He loves them. He's shown grace to them. He's given Himself for them. And He gives Himself to them. He gives Himself to them. Notice the consummation of the plan of salvation in Revelation 21. There in verse 3, it's the language of covenant. Right at the end of Scripture, they shall be His people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. It's the covenant of grace. Even more amazing, if it's possible, verse 15. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Can we take in language like that? The infinite delight and love within the Trinity. Father, Son and Holy Spirit delighting over salvation and over the flock. In a finite way we experience such a relationship with the Lord. We are brought in to that delight and that joy within God himself as we see the flock saved and growing and being brought to glory. Amazing concept. As the Father knows me and I know the Father. And other faithful shepherds serving under Christ are called to know the sheep. Not simply to have a stock of information Where do they live? What jobs do they do? But to love them. Loving care. Out of hearts that reflect the love of the good shepherd. As we have received his love. We become channels of that to the flock. We know the sheep. All of them. And we get to know them. And love them. And understand them and relate to them as Christ knows and loves and relates to his people. He gives his life for the sheep. He knows his sheep. And he is known by the sheep. He is known by the sheep. My sheep know me, he says in verse 14. The loving shepherd gives himself to be known by the flock. It is a two-way relationship. That's the other side of the covenant of grace. The Lord knows and loves us. And we know and love him. We know and we love the good shepherd. And by the means of grace he's given us. Bible study, prayer, worship. We are to be, in the language of Colossians 1:10, growing in the knowledge of God. And that knowledge of God, of course, changes us. It's transformational. As we know the Lord, we become more like him. We are being transformed, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3:18. Into his likeness, from glory to glory, the sheep become like the shepherd. Of course, it doesn't work, as far as I'm aware, on the farming level, but it certainly works in the spiritual level. The sheep are to become like the shepherds. And shepherds under Christ in leading God's people are not to be afraid of being known by the sheep, that our lives are open, accessible to the scrutiny of God's people. Sometimes elders, you see, seem to think they scrutinize the congregation. And they don't realize the congregation is scrutinizing them. And they should. And it's right and proper that they should. And that we are open for that to take place. All in the spirit of warm Christian love, affection, and care. That we pray for each other. We encourage each other. We support each other in the flock. The true shepherd gives his life for the sheep. The true shepherd knows his sheep in that warm, loving way we've described. And he is known by the sheep. That he is open to their scrutiny. He is to be loved and prayed for by the sheep. Pastors and elders need the prayers of God's people. We're nothing without them. Contrast of the false shepherd in it for what he gets, the true shepherd for the glory of God, for the delight of God's heart and our hearts. And the hearts of the flock. May God grant us grace to be true shepherds, for the flock to pray for us and love us and care for us as we are to love and pray for and care for them.